There are literally dozens of places, hundreds of options for food, right? You uh, decide that you want to go and uh, check out one of the parks to spend the afternoon. Well, there's five of them at least within uh, a couple of miles of here. You say, I think I'll just go and catch a movie. Well, there are multiple theaters with multiple screens within just a couple of miles. And you go, well, I don't want to go to the theater. I just do it at home. Well, there are all kinds of stores that have thousands of titles. You go, well, I don't want to go to the store. Well, you can just ask for it online and it'll be mailed to you. So it's, it's tough for us to accept the reality that in some arenas, there aren't multiple choices. There's just one. Even relationally, some of us are in what we might uh, refer to as so-called monogamous relationships, right? Because some people live with someone for a while, and then they go, well, I, that uh, has had its run, and then they go live with someone else for a while, and then they decide they'll get married, and that doesn't work out, and they'll divorce, and they'll marry some serial monogamy. But you still have choices. So when someone comes along and quotes the scriptures and says, Jesus, by the way, said, there's only one way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's just something within a lot of Americans that would want to say, that cannot be so. There's got to be more than one way. There's got to be multiple options. Why would there be such an exclusive statement from one of the most inclusive people that ever lived? Could it be possible out of all the thousands of verses in the Bible, one of those verses got twisted a little bit and maybe that's a mistake? Well, let me just say that when you look at the entire Bible beginning to end. It all has one central message, and that is that God has made one way to Himself, and that is through His one Son, the only Savior. And I understand exactly how politically incorrect a statement like that is today. But I'm going to ask you to take a little journey with me. We're going to Hop on our bike and go the long route. And I'm going to encourage you to take that Bible. And uh, if you're not familiar with your table of contents, get familiar with it because I'm going to take you to several. I'm going to take you to several uh, different passages that you'll want to follow along with me. So first of all, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to be at a time in the history of Israel. Now, Exodus, the event, is the single most defining thing in Israel's history. Genesis shows us how God brought this world into being. Within 12 chapters of Genesis, we're introduced to a nation, an obscure people descendants of Abraham that we'll later call Israel. By the time we get to the end of Genesis, we've got this obscure people in a time of famine in the land of Canaan 
and they have to go to Egypt to get food. And so now we, are, we find them in Egypt, and when we begin the book of Exodus, they're in slavery. The Egyptians have turned on them, enslaved them, made their lives very, very difficult, and they've been calling out to God for over 400 years that He might deliver them. And as you know, God taps a guy by the name of Moses to uh, be a part of his delivering work in their midst. And Moses comes to town, tells the king that God wants his people to be set free. And of course, the Egyptian economy has become so prevalent, so dependent upon the backs of the slaves, the Hebrews, they're not about to let them go. And so... Through Moses, God uh, conducts these series of plagues to kind of soften the hearts of the Egyptians and to change their mind. And guess what? Each one of those plagues harden their hearts and make them even more determined that they're going to keep those slaves. And so finally, the king, the Pharaoh, says to Moses, I'm going to call upon my Egyptian gods and I'm going to have them kill the firstborn the firstborn son of all of you Hebrews. And we'll see who the mighty God of the land is. And Moses said, Oh, I wish you hadn't said that. Because what you have called down is exactly what God, Jehovah God, is going to do. Only He will take the life of all the firstborn males of the Egyptians. And so when we get to chapter 12... We're getting to the part where God is looking to take care of His people. Look with me in verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel, Moses says, that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Now, verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood... And put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 11. This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So yes, this is the instituting of what uh, Jewish followers of God for years have experienced is Passover. But notice what took place. God began to establish in this early ancient history of this obscure people Israel a paradigm or a pattern of how He is going to deliver all of humanity at some point. He says, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to take the blood of the lamb. I want you to smear that on the doorpost of your house as a sign of faith in me. Because tonight, a death angel is going to come through the land and every home that has the blood of the lamb smeared on the doorpost 
will be passed over and you and those within your household will be safe. And as you know, that death angel did come through that night and uh, the firstborn males of all the Egyptians throughout all the land did die. But the Hebrews that had the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorposts were saved or were delivered. Pharaoh has a change of heart, says, get out of town, I never want to see you people again. They all pack up, some two million of them, and they began to leave the land of Egypt. And you know, as they get close to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends his chariots, hundreds of chariots and soldiers, after the uh, Israelis. And uh, God parts the waters as they begin to go across. The Egyptians come in behind them. God collapses the water on them and obliterates the Egyptian army. The Exodus. It's the most defining experience of the Jews in all of their history. And it's something of a paradigm, something of a pattern of how God has been operating throughout all time, throughout all history. He has chosen to use a people through whom He will bring deliverance, Hebrews. And He has chosen to use a method of taking a sacrificial life. And by the shedding of that blood, of that sacrificial life, people by faith can apply that blood to their own life and be delivered. Now, this is about 1450 or 1500 B.C. Fast forward with me to about 800 B.C. To the time of Isaiah. If you'll turn a few pages over to the book of Isaiah. Find uh, the Psalms and keep going right. And we're going to be in, in Isaiah 53. Isaiah is a prophet of God and God has given Isaiah a capacity... To not only see in the past and make sense of what God's been up to, but to see in the future and what God's going to be doing. And so we have this encapsulated in Isaiah 53. And if you're looking with me, pick up in verse 5. Where Isaiah tells us as a prophet, bringing a word from God. Speaking of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, the coming delivering one. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are all healed. Like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Look at the verse. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now isn't that interesting, stunningly interesting language? Because on one hand, he's looking ahead And he sees the coming of Christ, Jesus, who will sacrificially take upon himself our sins and our iniquities. 
And he uses language to talk about how he's going to be pierced, how he's going to be scourged, how he's going to be beaten, how he's going to be treated shamefully. And friends, this is hundreds of years, not only before Christ lived, this is hundreds of years before crucifixion had been invented as a torturous means of death. So he's looking ahead in that kind of way, but he's also looking back and he seizes hold of this ancient picture and language to say that future Messiah will be a Lamb of God. And he takes all that is meant by that Passover Lamb and places it on that future Savior, that future Messiah. So fast forward with me again, 800 years, and we're in the Gospel of John. Turn over with me to the Gospel of John. And in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we're introduced to Jesus. He's birthed into this world. And there's a man by the name of John, sometimes referred to as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist, who is going around the countryside announcing, we are in the day for the Messiah to come. The Christ is at hand. It's a time to be ready to turn your heart and turn your life to God, to repent and go in the direction that God's going to be providing in this Messiah. And so John is in various regions around uh, the Jordan River, shouting out and proclaiming this message of get ready, get ready, get ready. And all those that are getting ready are being baptized by John as a sign of repentance, a sign of turning away from their former ways and turning with hope to a coming Messiah. And on one occasion when he's out there baptizing in the waters, Jesus comes up to be baptized. And when Jesus comes up to be baptized, John looks at him and says, Oh my, I should not baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, No, so that everything can be done the way it needs to be done. You baptize me. And so John baptizes Jesus, and we're told that when Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open up, and a voice can be heard, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit comes upon Him in some kind of manifest way that's described as the descending of a dove. Love to have been there and seen it. On the very next day, the Pharisees, religious leaders in the countryside, had sent some of their uh, servants, if you will, to grill John about what are you doing? Who are you and what are you up to? And that's where we pick up, look with me in verse 25, John chapter 1. And so they question him, why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? Verse 26, I baptized with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the throngs of whose sandals 
I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, one who takes away the sin of the world. So there it is again. And now as the coming of Christ and the launching of His redemptive ministry takes place at this baptism, John identifies Him a la Isaiah, a la Moses and the Passover, as the Lamb of God. Now one more time. Keep progressing, moving forward in time with me. We're going to go to the future. Look at the book of Revelation with me. In the book of Revelation... We'll be uh, looking at chapter 5. So imagine that we've come to the end of time. Life as we know it is over. Time as we know it is over. We all stand before a a creating God, an almighty, judging, uh, hold all the accounts uh, for points of justice kind of God. So there we are in the celestial area. Uh, approaching the presence of God. Pick up verse 11 for me. John says, this is what I saw when he's looking forward in the future. I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now friends, I have just taken you to ancient history. To more recent history. To the time of Christ. And to the future. And woven together with one single thread through all of that is God's redemptive activity pursuing us calling us to be His children, to be saved, to be forgiven of sin, by placing faith and placing trust in the Lamb. The sacrifice that God provides for us. And by faith, taking the blood of the Lamb and applying it to our lives as a way of of testifying and signifying. I am incapable of reconciling myself with God and saving myself and delivering myself from the penalty of sin. I must have a Savior. I must have a Deliverer. I must have a Lamb. That's what our faith declares. Now, I'm going to close with one last passage. If you'll go back to the Gospels with me and look with me in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 18, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus gives a little parable to describe the difference between those 
who pursue the saving work of God God's way, who go the route, the path, the way that God says, and those who try to go another way. In chapter 18, picking up with verse 9, Jesus is speaking and He said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. He said two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Other version says to himself. Another version says with himself. The point is, to whom is he speaking? Is he actually conversing with God or just talking to himself? And so he stood up and he prayed about himself and God, he said, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe or a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus concludes, I tell you that this man, rather than the first one, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, obviously, was a good Jew. Kept all the rules. Was exemplary in morality. And the point is, friends, is that even though God desires life change in us, that results in us becoming better people, that live better lives, those are outcomes. Those are not the paths. Better behavior, keeping rules and regulations, is not the way to deliverance and salvation. And so it does not matter if you are a good Jew, if you are a good Muslim, if you are a good Buddhist, if you are a good Hindu. Friends, it does not matter if you are a good Christian church member. What matters is if you are depending on the saving work of God or are you depending on the righteousness that you can generate with good works and good behavior. And Jesus said, the first guy, the good works guy, he's not going to get there. Even though he's apparently thanking me that he's got his life together as much as it is, He's not dependent upon my mercy. Whereas the tax gatherer, the despised guy, the guy who has uh, got a pretty wicked way of living, understands how busted he is and how necessary he must have mercy or he is undone. That guy is going to be reconciled with God. That guy is going to be justified. 
So, friends, today, we're in here in a lot of different capacities. Some of you have been in and around church for a long time. Some of you have just been kind of putting your toe into the ecclesiastical water and checking church out more recently. Others of us are somewhere in between. Some of us know a lot in the Bible. Some of us virtually know nothing about the Bible. Some of us know a lot about Jesus and theology. Some of us know virtually nothing about all that. But here's what's true. We are all on level ground. All in need of mercy. All at odds with God. Born that way. And unless there is a Lamb of God, unless there is a sacrifice that God makes that can reconcile us to Himself, we are without hope and we are undone. And so my question to us today is this. Is Jesus your Lamb of God? Are you aware of how much mercy you must have or you will forever be undone? Do you get it that this is not about some kind of religious game where I show up for religious exercises and become the best person I can be, but rather it is me throwing myself on the mercies of God accepting the sacrifice He has already made for me and by faith applying the blood of the Lamb to my life just like ancient people did to the doorpost of their homes. Do we get that? Because if we get that, then that is our confession today. We are with uh, John the Baptist and say, the Lamb of God who takes away my sin, and the sin of this world. Our confession today is, I'm believing Jesus for eternal salvation. And so my question to you is this, is that your confession? Can you say that in all sincerity? You're believing Jesus. You are banking and betting your life on the Lamb and what the Lamb did for us to reconcile you with God and someday square up the account of your life with, with God when you stand before Him. Is that your confession? Now, I know many of you it is. And for that, I'm grateful. But for some of us, we've not had clarity about the issue. And so today, this moment is a moment of clarity. A moment for you to be able to, like the ancient ones, have a defining moment in your life. Hebrews, for all time, are defined by the Exodus and the Passover. Followers of Jesus are defined 
for all time by making the confession that we're talking about today. I trust and believe in Jesus for eternal salvation. I thrust myself on the mercies of God via Jesus. You say, Scott, you're really belaboring. You're kind of making a big point about this confession thing. I'm not sure I get the gravity of it. Here's the gravity of it. Matthew 10.32. You can write it down if you don't want to look it up. Matthew 10.32. Jesus said a day will come when I will stand before the Father. It's a courtroom scene. The Father is on the judge's bench. The Son, Jesus, is there as the counsel or the attorney in the courtroom. We all come into the courtroom in this celestial end time, guilty and condemned. Jesus will then, with every person that comes to stand before God, either tell the judge, I know him, he's okay, he's got my blood on his life, let him into heaven. Or he'll say, I never knew this guy. He does not have my blood, my sacrifice on his life. He does not come in. And Jesus says, on that day, I will confess you to my Father if you have confessed me in this world. That's why it's such a big deal. This has everything to do with all of eternity, friends, not just with the rest of your life, all eternity. And so the question that I'm asking today is this. Not only is Jesus your Savior and Lord, but have you taken a public stand and confessed that? Knowing that someday... He will confess you to the Father as one of His. You confess He's yours, later He confesses that you are His. What a sweet deal. And so, I'm going to stand here. And I'm going to invite you, if you need to take a public stand today, whereby you publicly confess that Jesus is your Lord, I'm going to ask you to just come and stand with me right now. Now, if you've done it before, you don't have to do it again. But if you're going, well, but I want to do it again. Well, that's up to you. But if you've never had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to take a public stand and confess Jesus is my Lord, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. And I'm not going to wait a long time. So if you'd like to come and stand with me and confess to others, uh, and I'm going to guide you through that. So it's like, well, I don't know what to say. I'll help you with that. If you want to come, come stand. Just stand here by me for a moment, and we'll see who else wants to come. Just cross the front here. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay? So, you guys. 
the rest of life and all eternity. There will be some scene that flashes up on the celestial screen where you took the stand today and confessed Jesus. And Jesus will lovingly confess you to the Father. Let me ask you for all to uh, hear. Is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? Yes. And is it your intent with all of your heart to follow Him as best you know how with Him being your helper? Yes. God bless you. You guys can take your seat. Our God is a good God. He loves us. He's been about pursuing us for all the weeks of this confession series to to this point. God knew who would be here. God knew who wouldn't. God knew who needed to take a stand. God knew who would. And God knew who wouldn't. So there's a sense in my heart today, friends, that there's probably at least one other that you felt a stirring and a compelling in your heart that you needed to take a stand, but you couldn't bring yourself to do it. It's It's a brave thing to do. My loving word of caution to you is this. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised next week or next month or next year. We don't know how long we draw breath in this life. And so my my gentle exhortation to you is this, friend. If you have come to a point where you believe Jesus is the Christ, He's the Lamb, He's my way to find God and reconciliation in heaven, then take a public stand for Him sooner than later. Because later is not promised. This is a time when we will uh, respond to God in other ways, in addition to how these have stood today. So uh, you may have a connection card there with you. You may want us to be praying for you in a certain kind of way. There may be the step of baptism that you want to take or some other act of commitment that you say, you know what, I'm going to follow Christ with this step. You can write that down. We, We certainly will pray for you confidentially about all that. It's also a time when we will worship the Lord with our tithes and with our offerings. Let's bow together. So, Father, it's been our privilege to just take a little journey, look at the Scriptures, see what You've been up to through all time. And now we respond to that. We want to more fully give ourselves to You. We want to more fully consecrate the one and only life we have to You, the one and only God. We do so with commitments, We do so with tithes and offerings. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Our ushers will come.